good morning. So glad you're with us here on campus. You slipped and slide down your road to get here, uh, which is my favorite part, right? Driving in the snow. Um, but thank you for being with us today. This has been a crazy week, hasn't it? I mean, I've never seen snow like this in these parts, I guess. And uh, this has been a wonderful week of sledding and, and uh, fires and hot chocolate and and I'm just so thankful. I want to do a shout out to some guys that really worked hard to uh, clean up our parking lots and our sidewalks. Delis, Casey, and Seth helped do that this week. So thank you, gentlemen, very much. <clears throat> Helping clean that off so that we could have a uh, safe way to walk in here and drive in here. We appreciate it so very much. Um, the last time it did anything like this is when we moved here, back in uh, the very, very beginning of the year of 2013. We had a huge moving, you know, 18-wheeler, whatever, moving into our home, and it was about, it looked a little bit like it does today. But um, for those of you who've been blessed with electricity this week, you've probably been tempted to binge out on some, some TV shows, some movies. Uh, one of the things that, that I enjoy, my father has taught me well to appreciate a good Western. Any Western fans out there? Well, back in the 60s, they started making these, these Westerns. They're called Spaghetti Westerns. And the reason they call them that is because they were made by Italian uh, filmmakers, and they started making these Westerns over in Europe. Uh, they're not as good as American Westerns. But anyway, they're, they're, they're shot differently, and they, they look a little different. But one of the ones that kind of is the quintessential Spaghetti Western is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Have you ever heard that phrase? It comes from this movie, right? And it starred uh, Clint Eastwood. You may have heard of that guy. In fact, that movie was kind of one of the ones that really helped him uh, in his stardom. And it had this theme music. Uh, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. I forgot it for a second. Yeah. Well, we have one person that loves it, but it was, it was, I, I honestly, I started watching it this week and it, it was so goofy. I just kind of stopped about halfway through, but anyway, uh, it's, it's, I love Westerns and I love the title of that movie. And of course I use that phrase all the time. And this week as we're, I'm going through our text, I'm thinking about what we're going to talk about this morning. I couldn't help but see the, the similarity in the text that we're looking at today. See the good, the bad, and the ugly refer in the movie to the three main characters. One's good, one's bad, and well, you get the, the idea. Same deal with the text today. There's a good section, there's a bad section, and there's just a plain ugly section, and we're going to talk about it this morning. The good uh, is basically the gospel of Jesus and the doctrine which we need to live. Those are the things that, that are good for our lives. The bad, well, that's division in the church. Anytime there's division and quarreling in the church, it's a bad deal. It's awful. It's horrible. God hates it. And the ugly in our text this morning are the dividers, those people that want to stir up uh, division and quarrels in the church. Uh, many of you know we've been in a series called Foundations through the letter of Titus. Paul has written this to him. And so we're going to look at our uh, seventh message this morning. If you turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, it says this, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, 
uh, warning him, uh, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Would you pray with me this morning as we look into this text? Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for our family, our church. Uh, God, it's so good to be here together. <laughs> it's so good to worship loudly and sing these songs of truth. It's so good to learn of your word, Father, so that we can become the people you want us to become. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us just for a little while to focus on this word, that your spirit, Lord God, would lead us to all truth so we would understand it, that you would increase in this place, that I would decrease, and that you'd give us the courage to be the people you're calling us to be. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, this is a letter. Paul's written a letter to this, uh, his protege, Titus. And at the end of the letter, like many times, anybody who writes a letter, we do this, we begin to create a, a conclusion to the letter. And usually in the conclusion, you start kind of mentioning some of the things you've mentioned through the letter. Don't forget this. Don't forget that. And by the way, this, right? That's kind of what Paul has done here in Titus in chapter 3. He's beginning to, to do a summary and, and a conclusion of the things that he's already mentioned. Make sure you remember these things. So he's pointing back. In fact, it's impossible for us to kind of learn what God wants us to know in our text today without looking back, right? The very first thing uh, that we see in the text is the saying is trustworthy, right? The saying is trustworthy. So we can't know what he's talking about. What's, what's the saying? Well, we're going to talk about it. It's something we covered last week. Obviously, we know that Paul has mentioned to Titus things about leadership in the church, He's talked to him about things uh, of discipleship and connectedness to one another so that we can learn more about who we need to be in Christ. And then in chapter 3 especially, he's focused on the fruit of our lives. So as we uh, live lives that honor God, as we're discipled to become the people we should be, then there ought to be fruit in our lives. The world ought to see who Christ is by the way we live. This is good works. This is obedience to God. And so these are the things he's, he's mentioned here. And he's, like I said, he's pointing back to some of these areas. The saying, what is the saying that is so trustworthy? It's from last week. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. Let's read it. This is the saying he's referring to. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, if you had to frame up that section of Scripture, what would it be? It's the gospel, right? It's the gospel of Jesus that he saved us that he washed us, that he regenerated us, he renewed us, he's justified us. That whole section is about the gospel of Jesus. Here's the thing, though. Back in the early church, when he says this saying is true, this saying is trustworthy, uh, in the early church, there were several sayings, several songs, several different methods of remembering the things that mattered most. And the things that mattered most were theology and doctrine and the gospel. And so the early church would create these forms for people to remember. They learned very early on, how do, we, how do we create something to remember the things that matter most? So they would put songs to the things that matter most. They would put poems to the things that matter most. And as people remember the poem or the song or the creed, 
or whatever the case may be, they would remember the foundational truth of our faith, right? And so this is kind of what Paul is referring to, this saying. You guys know the saying because we say it all the time. It was in the songs we sang. It's in the, I just said it just now, right? So that's what he's referring to. Five different times in the pastorals. When I, again, when I say the pastorals, I'm talking about 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Those three letters are called the pastorals, where Paul is writing to these two men to teach them to be pastors, basically. But when he writes this in the pastorals, he uses this phrase uh, that um, the saying is trustworthy. He uses it five times in the pastorals. He's referring to the gospel. He's referring to this doctrine of who Christ is in our lives. Uh, they, they take on these forms. So you, you even heard in, in scripture where it says, uh, when you greet each other, greet each other with songs and hymns and spiritual songs, right? All those songs had to do with things that mattered most, what we believe about God, what we proclaim to be true, the kerygma. That just means the proclamation of Christ and how we live it out, how we live out this teaching. That's called doctrine or the didache in Greek. And so that, that is what is being said here. This is, a, this is a trustworthy saying, and they had different forms. When I was a teenager, I remember there was an artist, some of you remember the artist, Rich Mullins, right? He was a brilliant, kind of edgy, uh, prophetic kind of character. And uh, he wrote this song called Creed. It's kind of, he kind of wrote it because he basically stole all the words from the Apostles' Creed. Remember, remember the song? I believe in God the Father. Remember? Maker of heaven, maker of earth. Remember that song? Well, I don't remember the whole song, but I remember parts of it because it was connected to a song. It's not just words. It's not just lyrics of a song. It's the Apostles' Creed written in, um, you know, before 300 probably. So this is a way to remember the foundational theological truths of, of, of God. They also had hymns. They also had what this big word catechetical forms. You've heard of the word catechism, right? All that word means is a process of learning, kind of like a school, a teaching of how to become more like Christ. So this is what the early church was doing. We, we talked about this in our series uh, when it said that they, that they uh, were committed to the apostles' teaching, right? That they were going through a process of learning what it means to be followers of Christ. We sing the song by Hillsong, I Believe. I believe in God our Father. Remember that? I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is... Exactly. We know it, we remember it, we memorize it, and it's important. Why, why is it important for us to memorize these doctrinal, theological, foundational truths? There's nothing more important in life, nothing more important. The Gettys in Christ alone, what a wonderful song of theology, but even probably greater than the current songs are the old songs, the hymns. We sang one this morning, I Stand in the Presence. Such a beautiful song that teaches us the theology and doctrine of God. Here's, here's what's happening. Our brain is split into two hemispheres. One side is more analytical. Uh, it's where we do numbers. It's where we do uh, uh, analytics and metrics and those kinds of things. The other side is more creative. So what happens is when we marry analytical with creative, then we're using both hemispheres of our brain. And it causes us to remember the things that matter most. The early church figured that out. And so when Paul speaks about this, this saying being trustworthy, 
he's referring to these forms of the gospel and of doctrine. Okay, well, the text this morning breaks down really in these three areas, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good is the gospel of Jesus and the doctrine in which we should live it. The gospel of Jesus, believing that Christ has come to save us, to change us, to give us hope and a future, right, in heaven. And then doctrine. This is what we believe about Jesus and how it looks in our lives. Do we live in such a way that we believe this thing? Paul says in our text to insist on these things. He uses this little phrase, these things, quite a bit. What he's referring to are these theological statements and these doctrinal statements that are so important for us to learn. We've heard them before. In the pastorals, he uses it a bunch. Let me show you a few. I haven't put them on screen, but just listen here. First Timothy 4, 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant. Uh, 4.11, command and teach these things. 5.7, command these things. 6.2, teach and urge these things. 2 Timothy 2.14, remind them of these things. And then even in the letter we're studying now, Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. So Paul uses this little term, this little phrase, these things, talking back to these areas that are so important for us to remember, right? It's so important for us to get this and understand it. He says, in fact, insist on it. What's he saying? That if we are part of the church, if we're the family of God, Titus, insist that people live this way. Insist that people live a way that is consistent with the gospel and with the doctrine of Jesus. Insist on it. It's, take it seriously. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about uh, the two sides of the coin, right? One side being belief and the other side being behavior. If I were to flip you a coin, you wouldn't get one side or the other. You'd get both, wouldn't you? That's what the world needs to get from us. They don't need to get one side. Yeah, I believe a lot of things, but my life doesn't show it. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I never prove it. I never do anything that connects me to that belief. No, it's two sides to the same coin. We believe in Jesus. We proclaim who he is. And on the other side of the coin of our lives, we live like we believe it. The things we do, the things we say, the, the way we uh, live our lives is consistent. So no matter what side of the coin of our lives people see, whether they hear us talking about what we believe, they also see it followed up by behavior. Or if they see the behavior of our lives, they go, that guy must believe in Jesus. They can't be separated, or at least I should say they shouldn't be separated. So there's three specific theological sections in this letter that I want you just to make a note of if you're taking notes today. The first one is the one I've just mentioned, chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. It is the gospel message of Jesus. It's a trustworthy saying. You can build your life on the gospel of Jesus. That's solid ground. It's solid rock. There's a section at the beginning of the letter, Titus 1, 1 through 4. This is the introduction of the letter. And Paul's basically saying, this is what I'm hoping for you, Titus, as I give you these truths. And then the next section is Titus 2, 11 through 15. So mark those down, check them out later, and see the theological uh, specific things that, that Paul is sharing with Titus. So Paul gives us a reason. Why, why would he want Titus to insist that people live a certain way? Why would, why would he want that? Well, he tells us in the text. He says, insisting on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
These things are excellent and profitable for people, or some of your texts may say for everyone. So last week, we talked about people who were saved, who trusted the Lord. We literally says that in the text. He saved us, regenerated us, renewed us, right? Justified us, washed us. That's kind of his descriptions of those of us who know Christ. But this week, he, he gives a different descriptor. He says, those of us who have believed in God. Well, it's the same group of people. If you have believed in God and you have trusted him and he has saved you, he's done all those things in your life. And if that's you this morning, if you know Christ and you're following him and you're walking with him, then Paul says to Titus, our lives need to be careful to be devoted to good works. I started thinking about this. What does it mean to be careful to be devoted to something? I, and I, I, this idea came to my mind. My family loves to go to the beach. We love going to the beach when we can. Just to be lazy in the sand and get in the water occasionally. But here's the deal about the beach. You've got to be careful at the beach. Like when we get started in the day, we've got to make sure that the kids and all of us have sunscreen on or we will burn up. And then the rest of the week will be miserable. Daisy's going, yeah, because we've done it before right? You got to be careful. So it's, it's a pri- high priority. When you wake up, we got to get that sunscreen on, right? Or it's going to be a bad week. And the next thing, when you get to the beach, there are things swimming in the beach with big teeth that would like to eat you. And so you keep your eyes on the horizon of the beach, right? You're kind of sort of scared, but you're not enough to get out. You just keep swimming and you're enjoying yourself. There's jellyfish. There's things that you want to be careful of. But there's also undercurrents, and, and as parents, we're kind of always keeping an eye on the kids when they're swimming because it's dangerous. When we go to the beach, we have to be careful. What, what does it mean for us to be believers in, in Christ, to live this life and be careful with our lives? How, do, how are we to be careful to make sure that we are devoted to good works, to let this life that we have in Jesus be lived out of us so that the world sees these things? Just, I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, I had a neighbor who, we have a hill in front of our house, and it's been pretty tricky. And a neighbor uh, wanted to go get some food, and she got out in, in her vehicle, and, but she only made it about five feet, and then everything's spinning. So all the neighbors, we have great neighbors in great neighborhood, they all rushed to the car, and we're pushing, we're shoveling, we're trying to help her. For a while, though, I just watched from my house. And I was just like, oh, I wonder if they're going to get that figured out. They sure are digging, man, they're really pushing. Then I'm like, what am I doing, right? And I'm like, I need to go help, right? See, that's the difference. That's what being careful to go, you know what? I can do something here. I can go put a little muscle behind that car. I can, I can go help. I can go make some suggestions. That's what it means to be careful. Find opportunities that God gives us to make a difference in the world. You know, my, my wife is good with plants. I like the way sometimes she has a plant that may be dying, and she wants to see that thing come back to life. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes that plant, she's watered, it's in the sun, it's got good soil, and it just sits there like a dead stick, right? Because it's dead, right? But sometimes she gives it the right conditions, the right sun, the right soil, the right water, the right care. And all of a sudden, it won't take that long, all of a sudden you begin to see these little sprouts of green leaves. And before long, it might show some flowers or fruit or whatever the case may be in a plant. But let me just say, that's how you know what's happening in your life as a believer. Are you dead or are you alive? If you're dead, you won't see green leaves. You won't see fruit or blooms. You'll just be dead. Nothing's happening. 
But if you're alive in Christ, living things grow. They grow. You can't keep a living plant from blooming and from, and from flourishing in some way to show that it's alive. And if Christ is alive in you, then your life ought to begin to bear fruit. Your life ought to begin to have green leaves, things that show that you're alive to the world. And the way that we show we're alive to the world is not only loving the Lord and being obedient to him, but finding opportunities to show the world who you are in Christ through good works. So uh, here's the question. As believers, are you careful to be devoted to good works? Do you think of it that way? It's kind of a, a, a strange way to look at it, but are you careful? Are you, is it a high priority? What am I doing that I can be helpful to be loving, to show the love of Jesus to the world? I, I like the fact that he also mentions at the end of this verse that it is, uh, says these things are excellent and profitable for people. These things, he uses that phrase again. What's he talking about when he says these things? Doctrine. Doctrine is good for you. It's the best life that you can live. I remember my, my youth pastor here at this church, uh, he used to tell us, he'd say, you know, sometimes people ask me why I believe in Jesus. And he said, he would say sometimes, well, you know, if I'm wrong about Jesus, I've lived the best life I could possibly live. He was like, I don't have sexually transmitted diseases. I'm married to my wife. I love my community. I help people. I'm not in prison. Right? Living the way God has called us to live is the very best possible life we can live. This text says it's excellent. It's good for you to live this way and to be this people. But it's not only just good for you, it's good for everyone. It's good for people. It's good for everyone around you. That's how we serve the Lord. So the good this morning, the gospel and doctrine, it's trustworthy. We can build our lives upon it. Uh, and it's the best life we can live. Jesus even said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to bring you what? Life, abundant life. And if you're alive, living things grow. So we got the good, and then Paul begins to talk to us about the bad. The bad is division in the church. If you've ever been in a church that had division, uh, if you've been around the church very long, you probably have. It's just sad. It's just a really, really sad thing because it, It forms out of selfishness and pride and ego, lack of communication, lack of love, lack of kindness. It's a bad thing. Uh, Paul talks about this division in verse 9. Look what it says. He says, but avoid. In the Greek, that means shun, have nothing to do with it. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So Paul tells Titus about these four things. Now let me tell you who he's talking about mainly. He's mainly talking about these Jewish uh, Judaizers, circumcision party. There's different titles we've given them, especially in our series in Galatians. We've talked about these guys. Paul's been battling this group of guys forever, his whole ministry. This is what they they believe and what they're, they're hurting the church with. They tell the church, you can't be saved unless you do some things you got to be circumcised to be saved. you you got to do good works to be saved. you you got to be baptized to be saved. They start making these conditional uh, things about salvation. And Paul says, no, you've done nothing to be saved. We believe in order to be saved, it's only through faith by grace in Jesus alone. Nothing that we've brought, right? There's nothing we can bring. 
So they've confused the body of Christ. They're hyper-focused on the law. What's the law? It's a, it's a thing of rules. The law shows us how sinful we are. And in the law, and I'm going through it in my Bible study right now, so many rules, so many specifics about how you can mess up and how you're supposed to get it right, right? So imagine 1,500 years of rules and laws, and now all of a sudden, grace has appeared. Remember we talked about that appearing of Jesus in grace. And all of a sudden, it changes everything you know about your faith. Wait, I don't have to do these things? To be saved, I just believe in Christ, and he's already done the work of salvation for me? Yeah. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He followed the law perfectly so that you wouldn't have to. He was, in fact, the only one who could follow the law. We couldn't even if he wanted to. And so then Christ dies for us, offering us that salvation and that sacrifice. That is the gospel. But what happens is these Jewish leaders, these influencers in the church, they they start talking about genealogies, which means Abraham was my father, and because I'm in the line of Abraham, I must be saved. No. Paul talked about this in Galatians. You're not saved because of your nationality, because of your family. True today, right? Just because your grandparents or your parents or your brother, whoever is saved, it doesn't mean that you're saved. The Bible tells us Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Same way for you. Do you believe in God? Do you, have you trusted him to be your savior? Then if you have believed, then it is credited to you as Christ's righteousness, and that's how we're saved. But these guys were stirring up trouble and dissension in the church around genealogies, which were causing these controversies, dissensions, quarreling, all horrible, bad things in the church. Paul has dealt with them, like I said, over and over again. Look, look at some of these cases where he's dealt with them. Titus, first chapter of our letter, uh, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. This is very serious talk. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They are upsetting whole families. He's talking about churches. He's talking about churches. They're upsetting all of these different churches and these church families, bringing this false doctrine, this false gospel in the church. It's messing up the church. So silence them immediately. First Timothy, he says in 1 Timothy 1, 3, 5, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and, myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith, right? Through faith alone, in grace alone. Jesus alone, that's, that's our hope for the gospel. First Timothy 6, 3 through 5 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up and, uh, and, uh, with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce bad things. They produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. These people are actually trying to make money off the ministry that they had in the church. It's awful. 2 Timothy 2.16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, uh, and their talk will spread like gangrene. It's It's addictive. Dissension begins to catch on. We have to be so careful 
to protect our church. 2 Timothy 2.23 says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So dissension in the church is a bad thing. Paul says it is destroyed families. It's destroyed churches. It's awful. He's trying to tell Titus and Timothy, understand your enemy. He, he used this phrase in a couple of those verses, this different doctrine or this different gospel. You remember that? In Galatians 1, he says that for anybody preaching a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus that saves us by his grace alone, anybody who preaches anything different than that should be cursed. Literally means damned to hell is what it means. Anathema. It's very serious talk, very serious language. And we see those same kind of attitudes. You can't let this in the church. He's saying Titus, Timothy, pastors. Uh, Timothy was sort of a bishop over many churches over Ephesus. Titus is kind of doing the same thing over many churches on Crete. Make sure that you're careful not to let this junk in the church. Don't do it. And can I just tell you, friends, we got to be careful to do the same thing. Because there are many different doctrines in our culture, in our world. They're springing up like crazy. And we have to be so careful to know what the truth of the word is. Don't take my opinion. My opinion is not worth a thing. But God's word is worth everything. We trust it. We follow it. We believe in it. We hold fast to it so that we know what is godly doctrine and what is not. It's one of the reasons we preach verse by verse often in our church. It's called expository preaching. The reason we do that is because when, when we take a book like Titus and we say, we're going to preach through Titus, every word, you can't avoid words. You can't avoid phrases. You have to teach it. And in doing so, we're saying, God, whatever you wanted to speak to Titus, we pray that you'll speak it to us. And whatever you dealt with with Titus, Paul to Titus, then we're going to deal with it in the same way. And we can't hide from text. We've got to learn. We've got to be shaped by this text. And that's the reason we preach in this way. I also will tell you, this is uh, one of the jobs of your elder team. Our elders are responsible to know the doctrines of the word of God. They're responsible to, to esteem them, to hold them up. And so when they spot false doctrine or a false gospel, whether it be in this pulpit or it be in our city groups or it be in the lives of our people, we can lovingly rebuke, lovingly silence because we want to protect our family, right? Here's the deal, though. That's called discipline. Dun, dun, dun. It's a D word. I've, I've said that before, discipline. Nobody really likes discipline. But can I just tell you, I'm so thankful for the way that my mom and dad disciplined me. There's no telling where I'd be, who I'd be, or if I'd even be alive without the discipline of my mom and dad. Dad, thank you for, uh, for all those times that you disciplined me. And he did it quite a bit. Um, I'm thankful for it, right? I'm so thankful. You know, those of us who are parents, and we love our little babies and our children, they start getting a little older, and they can, they're walking around, they're touching everything, and the, there's a boiling pot of water on the stove, and you know, what's that? A hand could go for that. And what are you going to do? Just going to say, oh, see, they'll, they'll learn. That's not a good thing to do. Let's see what happens. No. What are you going to do? You're going to cause them to stop. No, 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 no. You might even spank their hand. Don't touch that. Why? Because a little pain now will hopefully save them from a lot of pain later. My dad spanked me. 
He disciplined me in ways, and I think it maybe kept me in such a way that I honored and respected people. So I didn't later grow up in life with a handgun in a gas station saying, give me your money, because I don't care about life or you. There's things that we do as parents that we discipline our children. We help them to be safe, to protect their future so that they know the truth, right? This is all that it means in the church. But if you've been around the church very much, you know that church discipline is almost a thing of the past. It almost doesn't exist. But it's in the word of God, and so therefore we need to cover it. It's in our text this morning. So we've talked about the good, the gospel, and doctrine. We've talked about the bad, which is division in the church, quarreling, things that are bad. But I also want to talk about the ugly, and the ugly are the people that stir up the division. I call them dividers. Verse 10 says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, he is self-condemned. So Paul tells Titus, Titus, sometimes <laughs> you got to get personal. You can't just stand on a stage and preach. You can't just uh, study Sometimes you got to get in the lives of people. I have a friend that used to use this phrase, sometimes we have to get our hands dirty in the lives of people. We have to get personal. That's exactly what Paul is encouraging Titus to do. When somebody is stirring up this division, when somebody is causing another doctrine to come into the church that is harmful for the church, we got to deal with it immediately. Paul says, warn him once, warn him twice, and if you've warned him twice, after that, have nothing to do with him. In other words, he's out of the community. He needs to not be a part of worship. He needs to not be a part of city group anymore. He needs to not be around believers anymore until he comes to the place of repentance. And at the very second, he says, I'm sorry, I want to come back in. We love and we support and we encourage gently. This is what biblical discipline is. And what Paul's saying right here is literally just a repeat of what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Everybody write real quick, say Matthew 18. I'll say it one more time, Matthew 18. Remember it, okay? Please, I'm begging you as your pastor, please remember Matthew 18. Please remember Matthew 18, I'm begging you. It is Jesus's uh, remedy for broken relationships, either a broken relationship with God or one another. Look with me, Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, it's just a one-on-one -on -one personal conversation. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If you're bringing a charge against someone of sin, you don't want it to just be on you. You want two or three other people going, yeah, this is true of what he said. This is true of what he's doing in his life. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, an unbeliever, somebody who has nothing to do with the church, needs to be outside the church. So Paul is referencing Jesus's direction in the church. This is how we deal in relationships that are broken. Now, can I, I want to say this. In any case of discipline, the purpose of it is always restorative, never punitive. 
What I mean by that is our hope is to rescue somebody from sin, to rescue somebody from the brokenness of a relationship with God or somebody else, not to punish them. It's never, it's never our desire to punish, but to restore, to restore their connectedness to the body of Christ, to the family, and their connectedness to Jesus. That is the reason we ever have these kinds of conversations. Often people will not respond well. When you come to them and you say, hey, I want to talk to you about something that's going on. I feel like there's, there's some sin in your life and I'm concerned for you. I love you. Oftentimes people will bow up and say, well, who do you think you are to judge me? That's the first thing, usually. But sometimes, sometimes the Spirit of God will move in them and they will respond in such a way that they will submit. And they will, they will say, help me. Help me change. Pray for me. I'm sorry. Galatians 6.1 says we need to gently restore a brother. And so it is our hope and our heart that anytime we have to deal with somebody, it's done so gently and restoratively. If they refuse, and often they do, um, it's a very sad thing. In fact, I can't think of one conversation like this that I've had as a leader that I wasn't in tears with hope that they would listen, that hope that they'd see I'm not coming to judge. We, we don't want to be the sin police here, okay? Can I make that clear? It is not our heart or desire to be the sin police. I am a sinful, broken man saved by the grace of Jesus alone. So I'm not making judgment, but when we see public, outright, unrepentant sin in someone's life, we can address it as the body of Christ and gently try to restore them, love them, rescue them, before we became South City, we had a, a member of, of Temple here that was argumentative. He stirred up a lot of trouble. He had a long history of stirring up a lot of trouble in the church. And he started doing it again. He started making phone calls, downing me as a pastor, downing Brother Jerry, our team, downing what the vision that God had given us to, to become South City. He was just calling people saying, I can't believe you're supporting this. I can't believe you're doing it. And I heard about it. People, different people told me that he called them. So I had to go get personal. I had to go to him and I used this text. And I said, listen, as you, you know, we're moving toward an elder model and your elders want you to know that we love you, but we will not accept this. We want you to come in with us and go with us. We want, we want God to move in your life and to be excited about what he's doing in our church. But he refused and he left our church and I'm glad he did because he didn't need to be stirring up evil in our church. He didn't need to be stirring up dissension in our church. And we loved him well, and we offered him grace and forgiveness, and he chose to leave. The text says that these people, these kind of people that stir up this kind of problems in the church, they're warped. In other words, that word literally means they're twisted on the inside. They don't know what, which way is up. They can't differentiate what's God's way and what's my way. It's all mangled. It's warped. It also says that they're sinful people. That word literally means it's active. They haven't stopped sinning. In other words, he kept on making calls. He kept on uh, putting down leadership in the church. He kept on trying to move people away from what God was doing. He continued to sin. And then the last description Paul gives is that, he was, that these people are self-condemned. What does that mean? To be self-condemned means that you've been warned once, twice. You've been loved 
You've had conversations and you've made the choice to go, you know what? I'm still doing it my way. I'm still going to live my way. I don't agree with you. I'll take the responsibility of the consequence of my sin. That means you've just self-condemned. You've condemned yourself because you won't listen to truth. You won't respond to love. You won't submit to the authority that God has given the church. I love this quote from uh, one of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, World War II martyr, theologian, died in a Nazi war camp. He says, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to sin. In other words, there's nothing more cruel than letting somebody just go off in their sin and never doing anything about it. So cruel. Look what he says. And nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Cruelty is just to let them go. See, we've, we've gotten warped a little bit in the church and, that we, and sometimes in our city groups we hear about somebody doing things that they shouldn't do and we go, I hate to say anything. Right? Isn't that what we do? I, just, I, hate, I don't want him to think I'm, I'm super spiritual. Instead, we need to reach out because we love. The deepest, most uh, authentic level of love is honesty, right? Would you like to go to your doctor and despite what he sees on, on the test, just to go, uh, you're good. Is that what you want from your doctor? Uh, I'm not telling him what really is going on. He's dying. But let's just say you're good. That's what we do in the church, isn't it? We don't love people enough to come to their life and go, I love you. And sin is killing you. I love you. And I'm begging you back into the family of God. I'm begging you back into the grace of Jesus. But you have to acknowledge that what you're doing is sinful. And you have to submit your life back to the Lord. Oh, it's compassion when we give a severe reprimand. It's compassion and it's loving when we do this. Remember what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 13? He said, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. Why would we rebuke somebody sharply? It sounds mean. So that they may be sound in the faith. Paul's hope for these people is that they know the truth. That when we rebuke them, they understand what it means to live a godly life. And that they can be sound in that life. That they can stop living in that sinful way and trust Jesus and live in a way that honors him. Paul's desire was to see people restored not punished. We discipline our children so that they learn. They'll be safe to help them in the future, to redirect for right attitudes, for right behavior, right? That's what we have to do in the church. And I, I just got to tell you, when we have these conversations, and we've had several, we've had several conversations of people that, that uh, we're concerned with, that we love. We have them in tears. We have them gently, and we always, obviously always pray that they will respond to the Lord. So here's what we've talked about this morning as we wrap up. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The good, the gospel, and doctrine of God that we believe and how we live. And then when we live that way, living things grow. People should see our belief and our behavior. They should see the good works 
in our lives, we truly need to be the hands and feet of Jesus. The bad divisions are bad. (laughs) They're awful. People believing other gospels, controversies, quarreling. Instead, can we please be a Matthew 18 church? Please, please remember that verse. Please be that people. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know you've got a good friend when they come to you and they wound you with truth. They say, hey, I love you so much, but what you're doing, where you're going, how you're living, what you're you're saying, this direction is not right. That's a loving friend. Second half of that verse says, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. If all they can do is compliment you and never give you truth that helps change you, it's not a very good friend. And the ugly, they have to be called out. These people that would stir up this type of division in the church, we have to be strong. We have to be loving. And it comes in these three different forms. I'll give them to you very quickly as we close. Number one, it means personal relationships. As believers, when you have a friend, maybe in your city group, maybe in your life, if they're dishonoring God with how they live, how they talk, where they are. What, what, I had a friend the other day said three or four expletives in one sentence. And I said, well, you sure are colorful today. I don't want to judge him. But I just, said, I just brought it to light. I wanted him to know I'm paying attention to what's coming out of your mouth. He's like, yeah, I hadn't read the Bible very much lately. And I said, well, you know what? It's not about just... Uh, getting into the Bible, it's about the Bible getting into you. (laughs) I don't see that. And you're showing the world they don't see it either. Right? So the ugly, the first step is personal one-on-one relationships. We've got to be willing to enter these awkward conversations. They're hard conversations to have, but they're loving. In our city groups, This ought to happen in our city groups. If a city group is really a loving, uh, accepting place where we can be who we are, honest and question and struggle and pray, and that's what we hope our city groups are, it could be that somebody says, I just got to be honest with you, this is what I think and this is what I'm doing. And if that's wrong in the sinful direction, in a city group, you ought to be able to go, my friend, I don't think that's the right way. I mean, can we pray for you? That's that's not going to honor God. Church, listen, that's why we're here. That's the purpose of the church, to help people see truth and live truth. And sometimes we have to help them find their way back. And then sometimes the elders and pastors have to have conversations at an elder level. And when we do, my prayer and my belief, this has been what we've done, we'd be a loving people. That we help people, we want to restore them, we don't want to punish. So as I close... Have you trusted the gospel? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Are you here today or maybe watching online and you don't know Christ? You've never trusted him. Maybe you've been about a religion. Maybe you've read the Bible to get into it, but it's never gotten into you. Maybe Jesus has never made a change, a transformation of who you were to who he wants you to be. Are you saved? If you're not, can I just tell you right now, discipline yourself in a minute to get out of your seat and come to this altar and, and repent. That word just means I'm going to stop doing my thing and going my way and I'm going to turn around and go God's way and I'm going to trust him with my life and by his grace he's going to give me new life and help me in this life that I'm living. 
as a believer, are you carefully devoting your life to the doctrine and gospel of God? Are we looking for ways to honor him and make him known? That's our prayer for you this morning. The good news of Jesus, it's so good that he's changed us, he loves us, he's forgiven us, he saved us. We have to be so careful as a church to not let division divide us, but be unified. And Matthew 18 is the solution for how to get there. Living in honest conversation, helping one another, drawing one another to a life in Christ. And then as people choose to go away from God that we lovingly place our arms around them and do all that we can to bring them back into the fellowship of the church, more importantly, the fellowship of Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, thank you for your word. God, this verse 10 and 11 here, this is a perfect example of uh, preaching through a word that is hard to do. But because of preaching in this style, Lord, we have to deal with this verse. We have to deal with this truth. And the beauty of it, God, is that this is your remedy for brokenness between people, between you and people. As we, as, we, as we sin, God, I want brothers and sisters who love me to come up and say, this is not right. We need each other. We don't live on an island, God. We can't live this walk, this life in Jesus alone. We need community, accountability. God, I'm thankful that your word says in James 5, 16, that we confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. God, you want us to be a whole person who lives this excellent, good life, who shows our lives to the world. And you want us, Lord, to have accountability, to live outside of the guilt and shame of sin, but live in the freedom and the joy of Jesus. God, if there's anybody here this morning that's living in shame, their head is weighed down, their heart is burdened because of the darkness of their life, the addiction in their life, the struggle in their life, the different gospel they have believed other than the gospel of Jesus, Lord, may they come to this altar. May they lay their hearts and lives down before you, God, and before this people. If they're watching now, God, may they be serious enough to just bow their heads Say, Lord, forgive me and change me and draw me and help me be who you want me to be. God, we love you. As we worship now, may we be serious as we follow you and give our hearts to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.